Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, August 4th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Trump appears in court for his January 6th arraignment. The U.S. orders the evacuation of its Niger embassy. Ukraine changes its counteroffensive tactics. Deforestation in Brazil's Amazon falls 66%. Two migrants are found drowned in the Rio Grande. Moderna projects up to $8 billion in 2023 COVID vaccine sales. A UK report predicts a 25% chance of a catastrophic pandemic in five years. France's AFP sues Musk's ex-social media. China proposes limiting kids' daily phone use. And a groundbreaking cancer pill is found to kill tumors. In our first story, Trump appears in a D.C. court and pleads not guilty. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Fox News, CBS, Al Jazeera, CNBC, and the Associated Press. Former President Donald Trump appeared in a federal courtroom in Washington, D.C. Thursday, arraigned for allegedly attempting to overturn the results of the 2020 election. This comes after Tuesday's indictment by a grand jury convened by special counsel Jack Smith. Trump pleaded not guilty to all four federal charges before U.S. Magistrate Judge Maxila Upadaya, Judge Tanya Chutkin, an Obama-appointed judge who handled several cases involving January 6 protesters, will preside over the trial. Trump landed in Washington in time for the 4 p.m. hearing, leaving from his private plane in New Jersey. Cameras are not allowed in the courtroom, but Trump was seated next to his attorneys while Smith was also present. Judge Upadaya set the next hearing for August 28th. The next step in the process, pre-trial litigation, could take months. Unlike the other indictments, Thursday's proceedings were the first tying Trump to the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots. Trump faces the following charges. Five years for conspiracy to defraud the U.S., 20 years each for conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and obstruction of an official proceeding, and 10 years for conspiracy against rights. Trump has insisted on his innocence and claims the onslaught of legal charges against him is intended to derail his 2024 presidential campaign. He is currently the frontrunner for the Republican nomination for president. Well, on this show, we like to separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Let's start our spins with this Republican narrative from American Greatness. Americans have had a sense that they live under a two-tiered justice system for quite a while, but Jack Smith's indictment of Trump shows the extent of the swamp's grasp on power. The media, federal bureaucrats, and Democratic politicians have made this takedown their first priority for seven years, and now they may take the unprecedented step of arresting their chief political opponent. This is a sham, and justice may be dead in America. And here's a Democratic narrative from the Daily Beast. No one is above the law, even a former president of the United States. This is especially true when it comes to a man who tried to overthrow American democracy with a violent attack on the Capitol. Donald Trump attempted a coup after he lost the 2020 election. And just like any authoritarian, he did all he could to subvert the will of the people for his own power. Even after all the damage he's done, Trump is still plotting his dangerous return to office. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative from the prediction community at Metaculus. They say there's a 38% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated by the year 2030. 
Melissa, I think our justice system is uh, wrong and malformed. Oh, explain. Well, so we have all these, it feels like every other day we're reporting on another lawsuit against Trump, a different uh, attack being levied against him, none of which seem to get over the finish line. Um, Mm. I think we should do one. I think we have the worst of all worlds. You should be able to either lump all the crimes together into one big like super trial Mm. or you have to choose which one of the many charges you think has the best chance of going the distance and then just have to pick that one and go for it. Mm. I think that we're stuck in an endless loop of like misfires and and different things that are just going to go on forever. I think it should be either you can mush them all together into a Super Bowl or you just have to choose the best one because what's the point of like going with the fourth best one? It just wastes everybody's time. Mm, mm. So so you don't want all the crimes looked at. The crime shouldn't be looked at in a silo in my mind. All right. I am charged with robbing 18 blockbuster videos. Mm. I would argue that makes it more likely that I may have robbed one of those blockbuster videos if you had that piece of information. Right. But I'm being tried separately for all these robbing these blockbusters. So each you have 18 different trials. Right. So instead, let's make it so like I'm being charged with robbing 18 blockbuster videos or they just choose the one where I also killed a guy while robbing it. (laughs) Just one or all. I think we're stuck with like a bunch of junk. You think too too much bureaucracy? I mean, as much as I I am frustrated with bureaucracy, I feel like each each one does need to get its day in court. I mean, How much money do you think I would have got from robbing a blockbuster video back in the day? Well, depending. I feel like on not everyone was day. using a credit card in nineteen ninety seven. Okay, in ninety seven. Yeah, I mean, yeah, get the cash, maybe a couple boxes of candy. And and you're going to make out with a couple hundred bucks. Plus, I would insist that they erase all my late fees. Like, I would, Ooh. like, listen, you know. Well, there's no, another $500 there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I'm not oh, rewinding this when I bring it back, by the way. That's not. right. I never have Absolutely to rewind. Absolutely not. That's right. Yeah. Anymore. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and news from the Niger coup. The U.S. orders an evacuation of its embassy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Politico, The Guardian, BBC News, and the Associated Press. The U.S. on Wednesday announced that it was ordering the temporary evacuation of all non-emergency government employees from its embassy in the Nigerian capital, Niamey, amid the fragile political situation following last week's coup. Without specifying when the evacuation will begin, the State Department said the decision was made out of an abundance of caution adding that the diplomatic mission will remain open to provide emergency assistance to U.S. citizens in the West African country. Washington remains diplomatically committed at the highest levels, the State Department said, with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken telling ousted Nigerian President Mohamed Bazoum on Wednesday that the U.S. remains dedicated to restoring the democratically elected government. The U.S. announcement follows similar moves by European countries to evacuate their citizens from Niger, On Wednesday, 262 evacuees arrived in Paris and another 87 people, 37 Italians, 21 U.S. citizens, and one Briton landed in Rome. The French Foreign Ministry urged Nigerian forces to fully guarantee the security of its embassy ahead of Thursday protests that saw hundreds of coup supporters gather in the capital. 
Meanwhile, coup leader General Abdurrahman Chiani warned of military intervention against the new military leadership in a televised address on Wednesday and promised to work on the necessary conditions for a peaceful transition to elections. Thank you for those facts, Scott. And we'll begin this round of narrative spins with an establishment critical narrative from Consortium News. The fact that the U.S. is now evacuating its embassy staff is yet another symbol that the era of Western neocolonialism is coming to an end in West Africa as a result of the coups in Guinea, Mali, Burkina Faso, and now Niger. All over the Sahel, people are tired of the West talking about democracy and fighting terrorism, while it's primarily interested in the exploitation of resources such as gold and uranium. It's time for Africa to free itself from the structures of economic exploitation and the military presence of France and the U.S. And we have a pro-establishment narrative from Time magazine. The evacuation of U.S. and European citizens from Niger is a tragic development for the West African country, which was considered the West's last remaining major partner in the fight against Islamist extremists in the Sahel. While the U.S. and French militaries are in Niger fighting terrorism, Washington has supported Niamey with hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars in military assistance. Now Niger risks selling out to Russia and its Wagner mercenaries, and the coup will contribute to instability and insecurity in the region. Melissa, maybe I'm focusing on the wrong thing, but when I read this story, the main thing that stuck out to me was how nervous General Abdurrahman Chiani must have been when he had to go on TV Uh, in front of the whole nation. I don't think he expected to win this coup this easily, and now all of a sudden he has to be on TV. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you you think, have you seen the footage? You think he was uh, No, I I, I haven't seen it, but he was brought in to win this war, and I don't know, and and now he, I don't think he ever thought about what would happen if he won it, you know? Mm. And whether you're for or against this coup, Let's have a little sympathy for the butterflies that General Chiani must have had before he got pushed in front of that camera. (laughs) You don't think he's got a lot of public speaking experience? Even if he does, I have a lot of public speaking experience and I get nervous. So That's true. That just means you care about what you're doing. I yeah, I guess so. Max, our 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 boss, Max, I, I spoke with him the other day and he said that. He used to be really nervous when he would speak in front of people. Now he speaks in front of lots of people pretty much all the time. Yeah. And he just pretends not to be nervous is what he said now. He hmm. still he still in per se he still gets nervous, but he pretends not to be nervous and then after a short period of time then he's actually not nervous because right. he's already doing whatever. Once you get out there and warm up then you're fine. Which, yeah. which I do agree with that notion. You know, w- once yeah. you're out there it does kind of go away weirdly. I guess if it went horribly, then it wouldn't go away. Well, the nerves would turn into something else. (laughs) That's right. Yes. Yes, I guess so. Yeah. No, that's a good trick because that's always in in perform. you know, I'm a performer as well. It is being being, uh, ready to go, like right at the first line or the opening of the performance. Like my thing was it would take me a a minute to get into it and warm up and then it was good. But, you know, you have to have that warm up ahead of time. Right. So that you're on you hit the ground running when the when the curtain opens. And primacy bias, if you screw up the first thing you say, that's all people will remember the whole time. So you really <laughs> do have to start off okay. Yeah, that first impression. Yeah. Have you ever had like a public speaking thing or performance that just went completely bonkers bad? That's a good question. Um you know, I think I block out a lot of embarrassing things. Good for you. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> 
But I do remember the most nervous I've ever been in my life was I was Uh asked to perform my one-person show for the graduating class ahead of me, right? Oh, Um, I was a rising senior, and for those... And for the ones who just graduated, they say, okay, your show is good. You really, you really kind of exemplify what we've done. And you're going to do this in front of everybody's family <laughs> in this, like, oh my in our goodness. concert hall, right? So it's like a thousand people in the, in the audience and wow. all generations. And it's like, okay. And here's, and I was backstage like, what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so nervous. So I had to go, I had to go and just like sit and meditate and that, and that helped me out just like had to go meditate and visualize and breathe and and it worked fine and it was like Good okay you. just now don't think about anyone out there you the one saw I'm so first of all it's a huge honor that they asked you to do that and I'm so happy that it went well that's like a real feather in your cap um, yeah that was cool but as a senior if it somehow went horrible like you're gonna be gone anyway <laughs> like all right that was a disaster I'm moving away yeah like, no because I was a rising senior this was for the class oh you ahead were going of me oh. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Oh, so you're stuck there. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. I just got nervous. Wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. We better move to the next story. All right. All right. Ukraine changes tactics amid a struggling counteroffensive. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian and The New York Times. Almost two months after Ukraine's counteroffensive was launched on June 4th, multiple reports have suggested that the effort has largely fallen short of expectations, with Ukrainian units reportedly changing tactics in the hope of improving their odds. Diagnosis of the shortcomings was provided in the New York Times and Guardian, both reports coming after journalists briefing with U.S. military officials at the Pentagon this week. Namely, they called into question the effectiveness of thrusting newly formed Ukrainian brigades into battle after they had received just four to six weeks training from Western partners. The reports also pointed to Russia's heavily fortified defensive lines, which have been jam-packed with mines. The Times report stated that in the first two weeks of the counteroffensive, as much as 20% of the weaponry deployed by Ukraine was either damaged or destroyed. In light of these conditions, both outlets, citing U.S. officials, said that Ukraine has changed how it's attacking, now opting for smaller units that advance on foot while clearing the minefields. It's also being reported that units previously held back have now been thrust into battle in the hopes of invigorating Ukraine's attack. As such, Ukraine has made territorial gains on multiple axes, but forces have reportedly not yet reached Russia's main defensive lines. Officials cited by both publications nonetheless suggested it was too soon to describe the counteroffensive as a failure, adding that despite the difficulties, Ukrainian forces can still break through and push Russia back. Thanks for that rundown, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. There are numerous examples from history of offensives being stalled for several months before they achieved a decisive breakthrough. Ukraine's current progress may be slow, but they're methodically advancing and denigrating Russian defenses. This fight is far from over. The establishment critical narrative comes from the responsible statecraft. Despite Western promises that Ukraine's counteroffensive will simply sweep away Russian forces, who have air and artillery superiority and have taken months to prepare defensive lines, leaders must be honest about the realities on the ground. Now is the time for a negotiated settlement, 
not for the needless sacrifice of additional Ukrainian lives. And the forecasting community at Metaculus brings us this nerd narrative. They predict there's a 4% chance that Ukraine will have de facto control of at least 90% of the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts by January 1st, 2024. Deforestation in Brazil's Amazon falls 66% in July. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, BBC News, and Al Jazeera. According to satellite data from Brazil's National Institute for Space Research, or INPE, there were 193 square miles, or 500 square kilometers, of deforestation in the nation's Amazon rainforest last July, down 66% from that month last year and its lowest in six years. Compared to his predecessor, Yair Bolsonaro, who promoted mining indigenous lands while cutting resources to protect forests, newly elected President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva welcomed the news. Lula has pledged to end deforestation by 2030. The INPE's preliminary data showed deforestation has fallen a cumulative 42.5% from the same period in 2022, with data from last month showing a 34% drop during the first six months of 2023. Drops in June and July are promising, as deforestation often spikes during the summer due to drier weather. During Lula's first presidential tenure from 2003 to 2010, deforestation rates in the Amazon dropped 80% compared to nearly 5 million acres, or 2 million hectares, of deforestation in 2022, Bolsonaro's last year in office. Tropical primary tree cover loss also jumped 43% from that year to 2015. The new data comes as Lula is set to meet with leaders of Amazonian countries next week, with the president hoping to create a first-ever regional policy, including security along the borders and asking private businesses to help with the reforestation of 74 million acres, or 30 million hectares, of degraded land. Lula has already imposed more than $400 million in fines for illegal logging in the first seven months of his presidency. Thank you, Scott, for laying down the facts. And this round of narratives begins with a narrative A from The Guardian. The new data, especially as it coincides with Lula's presidency, is a cause for optimism. Even despite the horrific environment Bolsonaro left him, the environmental policy success of Lula's government proves that the world can reverse deforestation if it has the will to do so. Every leader facing environmental issues now has a blueprint for success, and it's time for them to study and replicate it. And Narrative B comes from The Federalist. While Amazonian deforestation should be combated, claims of its importance to oxygen production have been greatly exaggerated. As for the global crisis, there has actually been a net gain of 865,000 square miles of reforestation around the world over the past 35-plus years. While countries like Brazil should work to protect their rainforest, left-leaning policies shouldn't overreact and risk destroying economic opportunity for the 30 million people who live in the region. Two bodies have been found in the Rio Grande. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, The Washington Post, Forbes, The Daily Mail, Fox News, and NBC. Texas and Mexico officials found two bodies in the Rio Grande on Wednesday, one of them caught in the southern part of the floating border barrier deployed last month by Texas authorities at the direction of Governor Greg Abbott. Preliminary information from the Texas Department of Public Safety suggests that the lifeless person logged against the barrier drowned upstream and floated into the buoys. The other corpse was recovered three miles upriver away from the floating border. 
As of Thursday, both people remain unidentified and their cause of death is unknown. Mexico Foreign Affairs Secretary Alicia Barcena told the Dallas Morning News that it was unclear whether they were connected. The reported discovery prompted Mexico, which has already sent two diplomatic letters to the U.S., to again criticize the 1,000-foot barrier, expressing concerns about its impact on migrant safety and human rights. This comes about a week after the U.S. Department of Justice sued Texas for installing the barrier, also filing a motion for a preliminary injunction to force the state to remove the barriers within 10 days at its own expense. The lawsuit claims that Abbott has violated the Rivers and Harbors Appropriation Act of 1899 and failed to obtain a permit through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers before deploying the buoys. But Abbott argues that this federal law doesn't apply to Texas actions. All right. Thanks for those grim facts, Melissa. Common Dreams brings us the Democratic narrative. This kind of tragedy has been waiting to happen ever since Republican Texas Governor Abbott launched his cruel border policies based on setting death traps to try to stop asylum seekers from entering the U.S. The buoy barrier isn't only an ineffective measure, but also a grave violation of human rights. So the federal government must take action against it. The Republican narrative is from the Washington Examiner. The Mexican government is outrageously attempting to pin the blame on Texas for a tragedy that's independent of the state's floating border. In reality, drownings in the Rio Grande by people seeking to enter the U.S. illegally are sadly all too common, due to Biden and Lopez Obrador recklessly pushing for open border policies instead of securing the border. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 0.3% chance that Texas will vote to secede from the United States before the year 2024. So I used to live uh, near Pullman, Washington, and a incident happened in Pullman, Washington, where a, a college co-ed was abducted from Washington State University, wrapped up in a carpet. Obviously, a bunch of horrible stuff happened to her. And then she was like thrown into a gully on the side of the road, like Ooh. outside of town. Yikes. And and it, I looked at what the, when that crime was and kind of the timeline, and it fits into that it could have been Ted Bundy. Um, and he was kind of in, you know, he was based in the Pacific Northwest. It could have been Ted Bundy. Whenever I would suggest that that was Ted Bundy to people in that town, and believe me, I suggested it a lot, <laughs> they would always be like, no, no, Ted Bundy was never here. We're not that kind of town. Mm. And my response to that is, well, congratulations. Now someone else did that because it happened. Yeah. It's, wouldn't you rather it was Ted Bundy at this point? Because at least that's the person. Now we have no idea who it was. And it could have been it could person could still be here. We don't know. It's it's now it's an, a totally unsolved mystery. Right. And that kind of fits into me with that Mexican uh, bureaucrat saying, like, we don't know if these two things are connected. These two bodies could be two separate incidents. Like, we'll don't jump to conclusions. I would rather them be connected. Wouldn't you? Yeah. That they were they were together and one just. Yeah. yeah. It, somehow it's a little better that way. Yeah. I mean, it's horrible. But uh Yeah. Are you anyway, saying Ted Bundy killed those two people? Look at the timeline. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> look at the timeline. Moderna's COVID vaccine sales are predicted to reach $8 billion in 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Barron's, Reuters, CNBC, Investing.com, Bloomberg, and MarketWatch. Pharmaceutical giant Moderna has posted higher-than-expected revenue and lower losses as the company improves its outlook for COVID vaccine sales for 2023. 
Shares saw an initial uptick Thursday before settling up around 1% as Moderna expects vaccine sales to be between $6 and $8 billion, up from their prior forecast of $5 billion. The demand for COVID shots in the U.S. alone is expected to be between 50 million and 100 million doses for the fall. Second quarter revenue dropped to $344 million, down from the $4.75 billion Moderna recorded in Q2 last year. Sales of its COVID shot also declined 94%, leaving a net quarterly loss of $1.38 billion compared to the $2.2 billion profit the company turned in the same period last year. This loss still beat earnings estimates as the company bets big on its targeted booster for the XBB.1.5 variant of COVID boosting revenue, with countries making advance purchase agreements in anticipation of the fall. Moderna and Pfizer will compete for vaccine sales during a potential uptick in cases in the fall. Moderna's fortunes were boosted by financial contracts with Japan and U.S. healthcare companies, as well as a deal to produce mnra vaccines in China. The mRNA vaccine is Moderna's only FDA-approved product, though it hopes to have an RSV vaccine approved and released in 2024. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll begin with a narrative A from NPR Online News. COVID is still a very real threat, with the market moves showing that Moderna is preparing for a COVID onslaught this fall, and we should heed the wisdom of the market. Moderna and Pfizer are preparing for such with targeted boosters that will help minimize the impact this time around. And CNN counters with Narrative B. Moderna has left governments around the world holding the bag, as the company has hidden data that showed the boosters weren't any more effective than the original shots. Governments have spent billions on misleadingly advertised boosters, with the company now touting their new shot in a bid to boost flagging revenues. In our next story, the UK says there's a 25% chance of a catastrophic pandemic within five years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by iNews, Times, and The Telegraph. On Thursday, the UK's National Security Risk Assessment was declassified, revealing that there is a one-in-four chance the European nation could face a catastrophic pandemic within the next five years. The analysis conducted by the UK government looked at vulnerabilities to determine which posed the most severe threat and would deliver significant impacts. In addition to a major outbreak, the assessment identified artificial intelligent drone attacks on key infrastructure and energy disruption as other major risks. The Cabinet Office declassified the analysis as a preparedness measure. The effort to be transparent revealed that a pandemic more severe than COVID could impact as much as half of the residents and leave more than 840,000 people dead and another 1.34 million requiring care. The Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden said, quote, by focusing on our collective resilience, we can help the nation be more safe, more secure, and in turn, more prosperous. The analysis also warns that a new pandemic may require a behavior change by residents depending on the severity and nature of the pandemic and the subsequent government response. While using the analysis to show the worst-case scenario, the UK government hopes that the scientific and risk-based communities will challenge their data and help the private and public sectors develop risk management and continuity plans. Thanks for that story, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Fortunewell. While governments, including the UK, suffered under the heavy burden of the COVID response, there is good news. If governments apply lessons learned from the recent pandemic, the chances of seeing another are reduced by as much as 71 percent. 
having a strong implementation strategy for rapid vaccine rollout, vaccine distribution infrastructure, and other preparedness and mitigation measures can tamp down the likelihood of seeing another COVID situation or worse. And here's an establishment critical narrative from The Independent. The UK is no better prepared for a pandemic today than they were for COVID in 2020. The government has repeatedly stated that another pandemic is inevitable, but at the same time, agencies are dismantling public services and repurposing funding for research that could help to prevent and ultimately manage the next global disease outbreak. Early on in the COVID outbreak, the UK showed impressive resilience and dedication to public health. Sadly, since then, London has failed miserably to act on lessons learned. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus predicting there's a 35% chance that a synthetic biological weapon will infect 100 people by 2030. Melissa, are you more hopeful or less hopeful about a government response to some future pandemic, having seen the response to our prior pandemic? I think I'm more hopeful, despite the fact that some politicians and some organizations will inevitably screw it up. Sure. um, I think we have learned enough as a people to have, you know, it's like having your second baby, you know, you you know a little more than you did the first time around. Whether you do it better, that's up to you. I fear that there might be a little too much familiarity with a pandemic. And what if whatever the next one is, is very different in nature. Like what we should be doing is very different. Mm. Um, either it's much more deadly or much less deadly or more whatever, you know, different in some way. And then we roll out the COVID playbook yeah. with, with with great confidence and hubris. Like, well, here we go, blurp. And then it's like right. something else completely. Okay, you're worried that we're we're too comfortable now. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm a little, I, I mean, I think when history looks back on this whole thing and it's no longer, you know, even politicized or criticized or even emotional or personal, I think people will look back and think that we actually did a pretty okay job considering what it was, you know, and I can't even say right now I'm too literally too close to it and, and temporarily too close to it. But I think when you look, you know, if you looked back on this, like someone looks back on the bubonic plague or, you know, the teapot dome scandal or, you know, whatever old stupid thing, I think they'll say like, you know what? I think those people did a pretty good job. I I think we did. Okay. It's not couth to say that right now, nor is it, it's inappropriate, or nor can we even judge it. But I think I bet you history will look back and say that we were we did pretty OK. OK. Yeah, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> you think that they're going to say like, man, those 500 idiots. years ago, those people really screwed yeah. this up. Yeah. Well, you know, OK, looking back on the bubonic plague and this is not a fault of theirs, but thinking like and, uh, you know, kiss you on the cheeks during my prayer that will heal you really, you know, now we know that's not such a good idea. Right. Um, Right. So I think we're going to know what we know in 500 years and say, we're going to look dumb because right, right. How quaint, right. Whatever that, whatever that is. Because it is funny to think that we're, whatever we're doing will be that equally as I look forward to even further in the future when it's just one paragraph. There was this bubonic plague thing. There were locusts in Egypt and there was this COVID thing. Those are all just things that happened a long time ago. It's just yeah. like one because it's like 10,000 years from now. Those just get mushed together. Like kind of right. like we talk about like, yeah, there were two ice ages. Those were a million years apart. Like those are <laughs> like that is not the same thing 
at right. all or there or, or a billion years i don't even know I, I'm, I'm ignorant to what the but like we like geologically or like how we say like well this stegosaurus was probably friends with this brontosaurus like they, they were 500 million years apart like they, they were not they were right. not the same thing um i i look forward to this all being smushed into an increasingly small paragraph in yeah. a future textbook yeah, me too. And I'm sure we'll both be alive for it because we'll be um, mostly robotic by then. Yeah. Well, I look forward to that. Yeah. yeah. It'll be a co- it'll be a computer virus we're worried about. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's so true. I'm still going to pantomime sneezing when I'm a robot and I have a computer virus. I think people will think that other robots will think that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like a physical comedy. It just yeah. it, it's timeless. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that'll be my thing. Maybe I'll become big. Like I'll be the, you know, like, um, you know, uh, what Gallagher smashed watermelons. I'm the robot that sneezes. Like that's my, right. like, wow. He's so, so clever. He's got a virus. <laughs> <laughs> France's AFP sues X over compensation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, Inquirer, Business Insider, and UPI. French news agency AFP is suing Elon Musk's X social media platform, formerly known as Twitter, over its failure to discuss payment for the distribution of AFP content. On Wednesday, AFP said it had filed a lawsuit in Paris to compel Twitter to hand over information to allow AFP to determine appropriate compensation for content sharing. In 2019, France was the first EU country to adopt neighboring rights empowering news publishers to seek compensation for sharing their work on digital platforms. AFP described this legal action against Twitter as part of its ongoing commitment to this principle. While Google and Meta have agreed to pay some French media outlets, AFP has accused X of a clear refusal to discuss neighboring rights. Twitter did not respond to media requests for comment on the legal action by AFP. In an X post, Elon Musk said they want us to pay them for traffic to their site where they make advertising revenue and we don't. This comes as in response to an ongoing effort to get tech firms to pay for news on platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, and X. Meta has blocked users in Canada from seeing posts from news organizations. Google has also suggested it would make similar moves. And we'll begin this round with Narrative A from AFP. AFP is right to take legal action against Twitter for refusing to pay for using AFP-authored content. As per French law, publishers are entitled to compensation from digital platforms that distribute their content without paying for the privilege. Musk needs to pay up and recognize the value news outlets bring to his platform. Breakingnews.ie brings us Narrative B. The French copyright case against Twitter is bizarre. X helps news agencies generate traffic to their site so that they can make advertising revenue that social media platforms don't. Social media platforms essentially provide a service while gaining nothing in return. Enforcing the neighboring rights law would be unfair to X. A China agency proposes limiting kids' daily phone use. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Scotsman. Engadget, Reuters, and CNN. The Cyberspace Administration of China has unveiled draft legislation to limit 16- and 17-year-olds to two hours per day on smartphones, 8- to 15-year-olds to one hour, and those under 8 to 40 minutes. Minors would also lose phone access between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. 
While children under three would be limited to songs and other audio materials, those 12 and older would have access to educational and news content. Parents would also be given control to moderate what their children see and permit internet providers to show age-appropriate content. In the wake of the news, stocks for Chinese tech firms mostly fell during Wednesday afternoon trading. Bili Bili and Kwai Shou fell 6.98% and 3.53%, respectively, while WeChat parent company Tencent Holdings closed 2.99% lower. Though the proposal is open to public discussion until September 2nd, once implemented, children and teens on minor mode would automatically see their online applications close when their respective time limits are up. It's still unclear how the rules would be implemented, though international companies such as Apple and Google would both likely have to make changes to their parental controls. It would also likely force Chinese app developers, including ByteDance, which owns TikTok, to redesign their apps to fit the rules. The news follows Beijing's imposition of a video game curfew for minors in 2021, with platforms like Bilibili, Kwai Show, and ByteDance having offered teenage modes since 2019 to restrict users' access to content and duration of use. We have a pro-China narrative from Global Times. Beijing has been on the right path on the issue of phone usage, and this proposal will only further its commitment to protecting children from inappropriate online content and smartphone addiction. While many parents have lauded previous initiatives, they have also asked for broader and more efficient tools to help monitor their kids' digital environment. This is a win for public health and society at large. Here's the anti-China narrative from The Washington Post. Previous government measures by China, which leads the world with the largest internet user population, have had limited success. The issue of psychological obsessions with the internet and video games is far more complex than simply limiting content time, a policy that today's youth are very good at bypassing, regardless of what the law says. It's likely that this draconian move is another attempt to influence the behavior of younger people as China faces a sluggish economy and demographic crisis. Our final story, a promising cancer pill appears to kill tumors. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent, New York Post, Fox 9 of Minneapolis, Sky News, Metro News, and Daily Mail. A new cancer pill called AOH 1996, coined using the initials and year of the birth of Anna Olivia Healy, who died of neuroblastoma at nine years old, has been dubbed the cancer-killing pill due to its apparent ability to annihilate solid tumors tested in a lab. The drug targets a protein called proliferating cell nuclear antigen, or PCNA, which in its mutated form helps cancerous tumors grow. Linda Malkus of City of Hope in California said PCNA is uniquely altered in cancer cells, which allowed them to target cancer while leaving healthy cells alone. Preclinical studies suggest the drug is effective in treating cells derived from breast, prostate, brain, ovarian, cervical, skin, and lung cancers, with researchers also conducting studies on animals. One patient took the pill in October, but that phase one trial is ongoing and will likely last at least two years. Malkus claims the drug, which she's been developing for 20 years, can suppress tumor growth as a monotherapy or combination treatment in cell and animal models without resulting in toxicity. PCNA had previously been dubbed undruggable, but with this promising breakthrough, it's now hoped to lead to more personalized, targeted cancer medicines in the future. 
However, while acknowledging that the work is promising, some oncologists have cautioned against claiming success before clinical trials have definitively proven the pill's effectiveness in humans. Narrative A is provided by I.O. Given the drug's success so far and its emergence from the tragic death of a little girl, this story is nothing but inspirational. AOH 1996, in conjunction with existing therapies, has the potential to revolutionize cancer treatment and clear a path toward non-toxic treatments for patients suffering from this horrible disease. Narrative B comes from the conversation. While news of groundbreaking cancer treatments is always welcome, a one-size-fits-all miracle drug is very unlikely. This is because the various cancer cells out there mutate and adapt in the body, just as animals have done through evolution. For example, due to the unique DNA structure of melanoma, treatments for that disease must be vastly different than for lung cancer. And the nerds have the final word today from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 50% chance that there will be a breakthrough in the treatment of hard-to-treat cancers by June 2031. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, August 4th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.